Well, for those of you who uh, missed the um, little comment at the beginning, uh, yes, that is not normal for me to go from there to here and, and lead guitar in the morning, but uh, um, we had a few people who could not make it today, so um, sorry you had to make do with me. So um, if, you, if you would, take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians 4. You know, people have often compared pastoring to being a doctor, to being a doctor, except that one is caring for the body while the other is caring for the soul. And, and that's, that's honestly not a terrible analogy, not a terrible analogy. After all, the, the great Welsh preacher of the 20th century, Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, was actually a medical doctor before going into ministry, which is why he is, he's often called uh, simply the doctor. And doctors need to be able to assess um, a patient's health. They need to be able to determine if their patient is healthy and if not, how to address it. Uh, And similarly, pastors need to be able to evaluate spiritual health. And that's true in terms of the spiritual health for individual Christians, but also for, for churches. And when it comes to physical health, growing larger is not uh, always the best measure for health. Uh, Certainly, uh, that's helpful for for children as they are in that growth phase, but uh, growth is not always a a measure of health. For instance, obesity is not healthy, uh, nor is cancer. There are other indicators beyond just size that are helpful for physical health, Uh, indicators that might not be visibly external but are critical, things like your, your blood pressure or your cholesterol level, things of that nature. Similarly, there are indicators for spiritual health in churches. It's not always the visible markers on the outside, like the size of a church or the, the size of its budget. And while it's important for a church to have some clear and healthy structures in place, things like meaningful membership or biblically qualified leaders serving in biblically defined roles and offices like eldership, those are important. Those are helpful. Those, are, uh, those serve the health of the church. But this morning, I want to focus on some internal markers of a healthy church, some internal markers of a healthy church. This morning, I want us to take, in a sense, a spiritual heart checkup by examining four qualities that make uh, a healthy church member, four qualities, four four attributes, four qualities of the heart that make a healthy church member. And and let me just say this up front, uh, this is not an exhaustive list. You, You could add item after item to this list of what makes a healthy church member, what makes a mature Christian. That's certainly true. This is not meant to be an exhaustive list. This is not a perfect list. This is not a definitive list of these are the four qualities. Uh, However, my, my hope is to give you a pastoral list. As I've gotten to know this church um, with its unique members and its unique history and its unique makeup, Uh, These four qualities have come to mind again and again, again and again. These are four things that that I believe are are crucial and critical for the health of of our particular church. So so as one who's been called by God to shepherd this flock, I want to share with you these four qualities that I believe are critical for each of us individually and for all of us collectively, collectively, so that we would be, so we'd be a church, we'd be a spiritual family that glorifies God and puts the gospel on display for the world around us. And so four qualities that make a healthy church member, and I've kind of set them up as, as contrasts. 
there's, there's nothing special about these. These are going to be obvious. Uh, the, the four, I'll just give them to you up front. Humility, not pride. Love, not selfishness. Forgiveness, not bitterness. And trust, not suspicion. So we'll, we'll kind of walk through these um, briefly uh, this morning. So four qualities that make a healthy church member. And the first I want to highlight is humility. Humility, not pride. And for that, I want you to look in your Bibles at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. So really, verse 2 is going to be the one we're going to zero in on for this section. But I want to read verses 1 to 6 for us. The Word of God says this, there, I therefore... A prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Ephesians, uh, it's, it's written by the Apostle Paul, and as Paul often does in his letters, he starts off with gospel truths up front. Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, he lays out truths of the gospel about how we are saved by grace through faith. We've been predestined before the, the foundation of the world. Uh, he has come and preached peace to us who are far off. He has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. He has, he has saved us by the blood of the cross of his son, Jesus Christ. There's all these glorious truths in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. And then, as Paul often does, he, he turns a corner into practical living. What does this mean for your life? And in Ephesians 4, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. You've been called to salvation. You've been called to holiness. You've been called unto adoption as sons and daughters of the King of Kings. In light of this, how do you walk in a manner worthy? How do you walk in a way that puts that on display? He says in verse 2, the first thing he says is, with all humility and gentleness. And a major theme in the book of Ephesians is this idea of unity. And that's where he zeroes in on at the end of this paragraph in, chapter, in verses 4, 5, and 6. One Lord, one faith. There's this, this unity that is so crucial and important in churches. But the foundation of unity starts with humility. And humility is the response of a soul that has been saved by grace through faith. And so if, if I and if you are going to be a healthy Christian and a healthy Christian in a context of community in a church, a healthy church member, we must be marked by humility and not pride. Pride has no place in the life of a Christian. It's been said that at every stage of your Christian life, pride is your greatest enemy and humility is your greatest friend. Without humility, you will grow in no other areas. Without humility, you will not grow in any of the fruit of the Spirit. Without humility, you will not grow in any Christ-likeness. Humility is a prerequisite, is a precursor, because humility means that you haven't arrived yet. You have some more to grow. And humility is, in many ways, the first mark of a Christian. 
Because a Christian is not one who's perfect, a Christian is not one who has arrived, but a Christian is one who has understood that they are sinners saved by grace and by grace alone. A proud Christian is an oxymoron. There should be no such thing, and, and I'll be the first to tell you up here, I'm a, to, to quote how another pastor puts it, I'm a proud man with nothing to be proud of. So we all struggle with pride. We all wrestle with pride, but we all need to be putting pride to death, and we will by God's power because if we understand the gospel, that God, the Holy One, looked down upon us who are guilty, wretched sinners and said, I will forgive you at the cost of my own son. You could not earn it. You could not buy it. You could not work for it but I will give it to you as a gift of grace. If that is true, then how can you be proud? There's no room for pride at the foot of the cross. And and when this humility takes root in your heart, it bears itself out in gentleness. That's why he pairs those two together with all humility and gentleness. You see a person who is gentle, that's a person who is humble on the inside. Gentleness is the external flavor of humility in the heart. And I want to turn to the right just to one book, to Philippians chapter 2, just for you to see this, this motivation for humility. In Philippians 2, starting in verse 3, look at what the Word of God says. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Another word for pride. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let me just pause there. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Do nothing from pride. But in everything, in humility, count others more significant. Look to others' interests. This is what humility does. Humility does not look inward at what I want, at what serves me, at my preferences, but it looks outward at others. How do I honor others? How do I care for others? How do I encourage others? It doesn't say necessarily that others are more important than you. That kind of evaluation is beyond our pay grade. There's a sense in which we are all equal in the kingdom of God, but it says you count one another. You consider, you evaluate, and you give a value to another person that is higher than yours. Their interests are more important than yours. You know, I, I often wonder, I often wonder um, if a church parking lot that is too small for a church is actually, a, rather than a, a thorn in the side, it could be a great avenue for growing humility. I, I, I wonder what it would be like if we fought each other for the farthest spots. Now, I don't, I'm not saying you need to do that, and next week, don't go judge the person who parks in the parking lot. I'm not saying that. But as a body of Christ, how can we love one another, care for one another? When you see a, an elderly member or a, a family with young children, how, how do you think through those things? How do you care for one another? Having humility, counting their interests as more important than your own. Friends, there's no room for pride at the foot of the cross. The reason why Paul starts in, uh, well, sorry, let's, let's go on in Philippians 2 here. He, he gives this command, do nothing from selfish ambition, uh, look to the interests of others. 
Why? What's the motivation? Verse five, have this mind among yourselves, this mind of humility. It's a, it's a thinking aspect. You, you have a mind of humility. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being found in the likeness of men. And, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If this is our Lord and Savior, the King of kings, Lord of lords, the one who will return and judge the living and the dead, if this is our Lord who would do this for us, again, there's no room for pride at the foot of the cross. As believers, we ought to be known for our humility, not for our haughtiness, not for our self-righteousness. So four qualities that make a healthy church member. First, humility and not pride. Second, love, not selfishness. Love and not selfishness. If I could put it this way, love is is an attribute that, that gives of yourself rather than takes for yourself. Love gives of yourself for others, even at great sacrifice to yourself, to benefit others, to serve others, not self. And you see, even if you go back to Ephesians, it comes up there. Part of walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called is, verse 2 it says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience. If you're humble and you're gentle, you will be patient. But then it also says, bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love, there is going to be a love that should mark a believer's life. And not just a love for God, but a love for others. A love that pours forth and oozes out horizontally. Love acts in the interests of others, even at great cost to yourself. In a sense, you could think of it this way. Humility is is about having this mindset of considering others as more important than yourself, and love then puts action to that. Love is in acting on their behalf. Love is in sacrificing on their behalf. Love is in doing, doing things for others. You know, in a, in a church, perhaps you've heard of these terms before, uh, consumerism. The, the American church is too consumeristic. It's all about, well, I want to find the church that suits my needs and gives me everything I want. Love is the antidote to consumerism. Because you're not coming and saying, what do I have to gain? But you're coming and saying, who can I bless today? Who can I serve today? Who can I encourage today? It takes one who is humble, not looking inward, but outward, and then someone who is marked by love, who will give of self. After making that evaluation in their minds and their hearts, they will now give of themselves in action. Love is the antidote to consumerism. Love is an an antidote to complaints. Love is an antidote to all kinds of vices and evils. If you see a church that's marked with humility, and you see a church that's marked with love, it's a beautiful thing. That's a a gospel-shaped community where No one person thinks they are better than another. No one person is judging another because they all realize we have all received grace upon grace upon grace. You know, I often think of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. 
in Matthew 5.43. And you, you can turn there if you'd like, or you can listen. Matthew 5.43 in the Sermon on the Mount. The, these are perhaps some of the most countercultural words, counter-self, counter-human words. He says in Matthew 5.43, you, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That sounds like pretty reasonable advice if you're not a Christian. Verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is so striking because he doesn't just say, love your neighbors, though we should. Love strangers, though we should. Love your acquaintances, love your coworkers, though you should. He goes all the way over to the extreme and says, you're to love your enemies. If you only love those who love you, what good is that to you? The world does that. You, you don't need the gospel to be shaping you to do this, to just love those who, who love you. That's just normal. That's just human experience. But for you to love your enemy, for you to love your enemy requires having been loved by God when you were his enemy. It requires understanding a love that is undeserved, unconditional, unearned, a love that cannot be broken, a love that cannot be lost. And if you're a believer today, you have, you have received that kind of love, a love that you did not earn, a love that you could not buy, a love that you cannot lose. And when you, when you let that kind of love sink down into your heart, not just, a, okay, yeah, 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 I mean, I, I get it. Jesus loves little children, all the children of the world. You know, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Yes, 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 I'm, I'm good with that. No, if you let that sink into your heart, that transforms you from the inside out. That drives you to live differently. That drives you to live a life that is set apart from the world. A, a life that is not uh, responding in anger to those who sin against you. That is not responding with vitriol or bitterness, but instead one that responds even to the harshest of criticisms and sins, one that responds with grace because you have received grace upon grace. If you even need to love your enemies, can you love your fellow believers for whom Christ died? In a church like ours, where there's decades of history, there there are things that happen. There are disagreements that come about. There are tensions that arise. Are we able to love one another in spite of those things? Are we able to love not our enemies, but our brothers and sisters in the faith? 1 John 4, 20 to 21 says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Perhaps just one, one more passage to 
to give some, some flesh and bones to this, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 13. It's a well-known passage about love. But I, I, I want to do a little experiment with you. If you turn to 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 7, this is the well-known passage, love is patient, love is kind. Actually, let me, let me read those verses for us. Uh, verses 4 to 7, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. In verse 8, love never ends. Or, or perhaps different translations say, love never fails. I, I like that. Love never fails. Those are familiar words to many of us. Let me have you try something. In your mind, mentally, when you see the word love, put your own name in and see if this fits. See if this describes you. I'll do it with my name, not because I think I have shown these things perfectly, but just as by way of example. I hope I don't get struck dead for saying some of these statements. Tranway is patient and kind. Tranway loves, uh, sorry, Tranway does not envy or boast. Tranway is not arrogant or rude. He does not insist on his own way. Tranway is not irritable or resentful. Tranway does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Tranway bears all things. He believes all things. He hopes all things. He endures all things. Tranway never fails. I don't know about you, but that's convicting to even read those words out loud like that. When you put your own name in there, does that describe you? Sorry, it's just convicting when I think about how I fail at those things. But now I want you to consider the one person who does all these things perfectly. Jesus, he is our example. He is our hero. He is our savior. Now, let's put his name into here and see what this sounds like. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. He does not insist on his own way. He is not irritable or resentful. Jesus does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things. He believes all things. He hopes all things. He endures all things. Jesus never fails. Brothers and sisters, we have been saved. We have been redeemed by Jesus, who is love. And having been saved by him, we have the privilege of becoming like him by the power of the Spirit, by his word working in us, we have the privilege, we have the responsibility. We have the command and the calling to be like him, to walk 
in humility and to walk in love, to walk in love toward the world out there, but also to walk in love toward one another. As Jesus said in John 13, by this all men will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. A church is not healthy just because it is large. A church is not healthy just because of what it has in the bank account. A church is not healthy just because of the the facilities that it has. A church is healthy when there's humility and there's love. Not just external niceties, but love, deep-rooted love that will walk over coals to, to help one another out. Humility, not pride. Love, not selfishness. Third, forgiveness, not bitterness. I won't spend too much time here because I don't want to steal anybody's thunder for a women's breakfast coming up, which, by the way, you should definitely sign up for. But I do want to address this briefly, forgiveness and not bitterness. If you go back to Ephesians 4, Ephesians is just one of my personal favorite books. Ephesians 4 after he walks through those elements of what it means to to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called, he he ends chapter 4 by talking about what this new life in Christ looks like. When we have this new life in Christ, we put off the old, we put on the new, we put on the new things that are being renewed in the image of Christ. We want to be like him. And and towards the end of this really practical section in Ephesians 4, 31 and 32, God says this to us through Paul. Ephesians 4.31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You and I revel in and rejoice in the fact that we have been forgiven by God We have received forgiveness. Are we slow in granting forgiveness? We are to forgive as God in Christ forgave us. I think forgiveness is one of the most central things in the Christian life, and yet forgiveness is so misunderstood. So misunderstood. You've you've heard the cliches, forgive and forget. Forget that. Terrible. Not true. It's not forgive and forget. Uh, perhaps the, the easiest way of explaining what forgiveness is, is is that forgiveness is like canceling a debt. Forgiveness is canceling a debt. When somebody sins against you, it's as if they have incurred a debt. They owe a debt to you. They've sinned against you. They've wronged you. They owe you a debt. And for you to hold on to that debt would be like bitterness. You were trying to make them pay that debt, either in your own heart as you think vengeful thoughts about them, or you're trying to make them pay that debt as you slander them behind their backs, or as you throw those things in their face. Well, you did this and this to me, throwing their sin in their face. Uh, When somebody sins against you, they have incurred a debt against you. And forgiveness doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. Forgiveness doesn't mean, oh, it's no big deal. Forgiveness doesn't mean you just forgot about it. Forgiveness means you owe me a real debt, and I'm canceling it. I'm canceling it. I will not make you pay it. 
I will not hold it over you. It's gone. It's gone. A practical way some people will put it is that forgiveness means that you're making a, a promise, a commitment. I will not bring it up to myself, that stewing kind of bitterness. I will not bring it up to you, the one who has sinned against me, to, to hold it over them, and I will not bring it up to others. I will not treat them according to their sins. That's how God forgives us. He does not treat us according to our sins. And so we say, we, the debt is canceled. I will never ask you to pay it again. I am canceling it. The debt is gone. And, and if that's the case, forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is a choice. It's a commitment. I can't change how I feel about it. I can't forgive. I don't feel like forgiving. Forgiveness is not a feeling. It's a choice. It's a commitment before the Lord and before that person. You're canceling the debt. I was reading one book on forgiveness recently, and I just appreciated the way this author put it. Forgiveness is never deserved. And that just hit me. Forgiveness is never deserved. Have you ever thought about a situation where someone sinned against you, and you know you're supposed to forgive them? Someone says maybe to you, you need to forgive them, and you say, they don't deserve it. Now, there needs to be repentance before there can be a restoration of a relationship. There needs to be repentance before that forgiveness can be fully enacted. There is a sense in which that's true. There is a, a condition to forgiveness to a degree. But in terms of your heart, how you feel towards that person who has sinned against you, forgiveness is never deserved. Can I turn it more personally to you, between you and the Lord? You did not deserve his forgiveness. Do you understand that? I, I find it far too easy to take God's forgiveness for granted. Of course he would forgive me. Of course he should forgive me. Of course he must forgive me. And I take it for granted that all of a sudden, what is a gift that is undeserved now becomes a demand. Oh, I deserve forgiveness, but he does not. She does not. Friends, forgiveness is never deserved. Forgiveness actually means a real wrong happened. You're not saying it's no big deal. It's no small thing. Oh, I don't even remember it. No, forgiveness means you've really been wronged. They do not deserve it. They don't deserve forgiveness. And you're not minimizing the offense. In fact, being sinned against doesn't prevent you from forgiving. Being sinned against is a prerequisite to forgiveness. You can only forgive sin. Being sinned against is actually a prerequisite for forgiveness. It's not a prevention to forgiveness. Have you been sinned against? Yes, I have, so I can't forgive. No, no, if you've been sinned against, then you qualify to forgive somebody else. Are we a people that are marked by forgiveness rather than bitterness, to have the freedom of canceling debts, or, or are there ledgers that have grown long in the body of Christ? Are there offenses that have taken root, even perhaps small offenses that have taken root and become roots of bitterness that have become walls that separate us? One pastor, Matt Smethurst, Put it this way, he said, an immature Christian is hard to please and easy to offend. 
An immature Christian is hard to please and easy to offend. As we grow in maturity in Christ, may we be people who are easy to please and hard to offend. Friends, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been forgiven, and forgiven people forgive people. If you have received grace, you should be spring-loaded to show grace to others. The debt others owe to us is so small and minuscule compared to the debt that we owe to God and the debt that was canceled by the blood of Christ. So humility, not pride. Love, not selfishness. Forgiveness, not bitterness. Last, trust, not suspicion. Perhaps that one stands out as a little bit different. Perhaps one that is not talked about as much. And, and, you know, a lot of these things that we're talking about this morning, it's, it's, it's interesting in the broader church culture, there's a lot of talk about church hurt. Perhaps that's a term you've heard before. And in a lot of ways, these things are all trying to address this. There's humility, there's love, there's forgiveness, and then there's trust. And trust and forgiveness don't necessarily go hand in hand. You can forgive somebody while not fully trusting them yet. It's, again, to use that debt cancellation analogy, you can cancel someone's debt. It doesn't mean that you have to make them another loan, right? But in the body of Christ, there ought to be a growing sense of trust. We ought to be marked more by trust than by suspicion. If, if you remember in 1 Corinthians 13, it, it, it has a very brief line there. 1 Corinthians 13 says, love believes all things. Remember that? 1 Corinthians 13, 7. It says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love believes all things. This is not a, a call to naivety. This is not a call to... Um, being taken advantage of, per se. But this is a call to have a a disposition of trust. A disposition of trust. And we live in a culture of distrust, and I get it. We live in a culture of distrust. There's fake news everywhere. I I saw an article recently that said the the fast food joint with the slowest drive-through time was Chick-fil-A. Lies. (laughs) Who in the world put that in print? Unless you go on Sunday and you wait all the way till they're open on Monday, that's the only way that's true. I digress. I have trust issues when I read things like that, okay? But some of us have trust issues in the church. We live in a culture of distrust. We've been hurt one too many times. We've been disappointed one too many times. A pastor named Mark Dever wrote this in a book about healthy churches. <laughs> he said this, it is a serious spiritual deficiency in a church either to have leaders who are untrustworthy or members who are incapable of trusting. There's two sides of this. It's a, not a minor one. He says it's a serious spiritual deficiency in a church either to have leaders who are untrustworthy or members who are incapable of of trusting. Now, no church will have perfect leaders. If you find a church with perfect leaders, tell me, because I want to go there. I'll quit. I want to go there. There is no church with perfect leaders. But by God's grace, there are churches with trustworthy leaders. 
Leaders in churches need to be trustworthy. Uh, There are qualifications to leadership. You don't just say you've got a pulse and an impulse, so go ahead and do it. There are qualifications for leadership of being above reproach and so on and so forth. And when a church has untrustworthy leaders, that church is in trouble. And sitting in the pew, it's probably easier to think about that danger in a church, and it is a danger, and it is a problem, and we need to make sure we have trustworthy leaders. Pray for your leaders that we would be trustworthy. Pray for for the pastors of this church that we would follow after God closely. We need your prayers. But have you ever considered the danger to a church to have members who are incapable of trusting, members who are unwilling and incapable of trusting? And again, there are hurts, there are baggage, so on and so forth. Yes. But in a church, if there is a settled resolve to say, love believes all things, but I will not. That's corrosive to a church. Trust, it's been said that trust is a byproduct of character and competence. Trust is a byproduct of character and competence. And When you don't trust someone, are are you saying, I don't trust your character or I don't trust your competence? For instance, if I say to my wife, don't worry, I'm cooking dinner tonight, she probably should be wise to distrust my competence. That would be wise on her part. But it's another thing altogether to say, I don't believe you care for this family at all. To doubt someone's competence is one thing, and when someone fails in terms of their competence, we can give them help. We can give them encouragement. We can give them more training. But when someone fails in terms of character, that's a, that's a different ballgame. And when we, when we say, I will not trust you because of character, because I distrust you, that's a serious statement that is either that's an untrustworthy leader or it's a member who's unwilling, incapable of trusting. And either way, there is a problem. There's a big difference between disagreement and distrust. It is... It is um, inevitable that in a church there will be disagreement. Inevitable there will be disagreement. But when there's distrust, that's when there's danger. We can disagree about matters. Two people can disagree about matters, and they can say, you know what? I know your intention is to love the Lord. Your intention is to serve this church. We just disagree about the way to get there, but we both want to honor the Lord. Praise God for that. We can disagree and still walk together, but the moment someone says, I hear you, and I just don't trust your motives. We're in dangerous territory. We're in dangerous territory. I read one pastor write this, two members. You you either need to trust your leaders, or you need to bring up your concerns and ultimately replace those leaders with trustworthy ones, or you need to find a new church where you can trust the leaders. But it's not an option to simply sit and say, I trust no one but myself. Why am I using this word trust? You know, when you think about Hebrews 13, 17, Hebrews 13, 17 says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls. Implicit in this command of submission and obedience is trust. You know, when, when, when I have the privilege of doing premarital counseling with couples and we talk about submission, a key to submission is trust. I often will ask the young lady, 
Your gift of submission in marriage is your greatest gift. It is a precious gift. It's a vulnerable gift. And so you want to make sure you are giving your gift of submission to someone you trust, to a man of character, a man who is himself under authority, under the authority of Scripture, a man who is following Christ. Do you trust him? The question of will you submit to him is really a question of do you trust him? And similarly, the the implicit command behind submit to your leaders is trust them. Do you trust them? And again, in a church, it's a serious spiritual deficiency to have untrustworthy leaders, but also members who are incapable of trusting. And so either the, the choices are trust the leaders God gives you or bring up your concerns to those leaders and ultimately replace them if they do not respond, or you need to find a church where you can trust the leaders. But to simply sit and say, I trust no one but myself is not a biblical option. You know, it's, it's, it's a young person's error to be naive, but it's an older person's error to, be, to become cynical after you've been burned one too many times. We, we want to be as those who are growing in that 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love that believes all things, as those who want to submit to those whom God has put over us. As we want to grow in those things, we want to be discerning without becoming critical. We want to be trusting without being naive. It's like what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 16. We are to be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. There are some older saints in church history that have worked through what this means to, to, that love believes all things. John Calvin, John Calvin wrote this. He said, a Christian man will reckon it better to be imposed upon by his own kindness and easy temper than to wrong his brother by an unfriendly suspicion. John Calvin says, it's better to be imposed upon by others than to have a a suspicion, to wrong my brother with an unfriendly suspicion. Charles Spurgeon, Prince of Preachers, in his lectures to his students, there's one chapter called The Blind Eye and the Deaf Ear, and he says this, Charles Spurgeon said, quote, avoid with your whole soul that spirit of suspicion which sours some men's lives. Suspicion makes a man a torment to himself and a spy towards others. It would be better to be deceived a hundred times than to live a life of suspicion. I find that to be so, so helpful and instructive. And then in speaking of the corrosive nature of suspicion, he says this, learn to disbelieve those who have no faith in their brethren. Suspect those who would lead you to suspect others. I think that's wise counsel. That's wise pastoral counsel. When we think about love believes all things, it's not a call to naivety, but it is to say that our bent should not be one of suspicion, but one of trust. Suspicion is contagious, and it's close cousins with pride and self-righteousness. If I could put it this way, if the only person that, that I trust is myself, that's a mark of pride, not humility. Do I trust the Lord? Do I trust the Lord that his word is good and that those he puts in my life, I can trust them? And if, if I can't, then I need to go to them. Not talk about one another, but to talk to one another in these matters. So I wonder, as, I, as we talk about these things in terms of the life of the church, 
are, are you marked by humility? Humility toward one another, not pride. Are you marked by love to one another, where you will bend over backwards to serve others rather than to be selfish? Are you one who will pursue forgiveness? Register online for the women's breakfast rather than to stew with bitterness? Will you be one who will learn to trust and not be given to suspicion? Trusting others around you. Trusting the the spirit of God is at work in your brothers and sisters around you rather than to be suspect of everyone around you. By no means should we be naive, but we want to be those who are filled with grace to the point where we would learn to trust the Lord and therefore trust one another. Friends, these are, these are four qualities that if, if, if we pursue these, if I pursue these, if you pursue, if we all together pursue these, if every individual pursues this, this will lead to a healthy body, to a healthy church. But if, if pride, selfishness, bitterness, and suspicion reign in our hearts, reigns in our pews, a church can be active. We can do all kinds of things. A church can be growing numerically. That church would be dreadfully unhealthy, waiting for a heart attack. Friends, my, my, prayer, my prayer and hope is that we would grow in these ways for the sake of Christ and by the power of Christ, that we would display the beauty of Christ to a world that is marked by all those things, a world that is marked by, by pride, a, a world that is marked by selfishness, a world that is marked by bitterness, a world that is marked by suspicion. May we shine as lights together as a family, but also individually where the Lord has put us. May we as a church grow in these ways. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word that convicts, your word that encourages, your word that empowers us through your spirit to live like Christ, to make us like your son. Oh Lord, may we be like him, Jesus, the one who is love, the one who is patient, the one who is kind, the one who never fails. Lord, thank you for Jesus and help us to live like him and to put him on display. May we be a church that is marked by these things for the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, and for the salvation of the lost around us as they see something different. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.